Okay. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5 today. Looking at the first 11 verses. Nobody likes a horse thief, right? In the Old West, horse thieves were often hung, either publicly after a trial uh, or at the nearest available tree once the thief was caught by vigilantes. And this was done both to dissuade others from stealing horses and because stealing a man's horse was the same as stealing his livelihood or even his life. And I heard some jokes on the way in about a man would rather you take his wife than his horse. I don't know if that's true. I won't ask anybody and put anyone on the spot. Um, but there weren't, you know, back then there weren't a whole lot of, like, padlocks and things like that. Thieves made their way, uh, made their living by robbing uh, livestock and as well as houses, trains, banks, uh, and any other place there might be valuables. Safeguarding has advanced over time, and today there are all manner of safeguards, including locks, tracking devices, video equipment, uh, just a host of other things. We live at the edge of the Old West, I would say, out here, uh, but a lot of folks still don't lock their doors. Uh, everybody pretty much knows everybody, and crime is fairly low. We have local law enforcement that does a good job of keeping an eye on things. Uh, I'm a little different though, obviously. Uh, I was born and raised in a big city environment, and we always locked our doors, even if we were home, uh, even in the daytime. It didn't matter. We locked our doors. To this day, I still lock all the doors in my house all the time. It's just like a force of habit. I don't even think about it really. Uh, so that even in the daytime, the door is, is pretty much locked to keep out those we aren't expecting, right? That's part of it. Uh, those we would rather not screen or not deal with in any sort of way. Uh, this is where I'm coming from. It's a matter of uh, privacy, I guess. I mean, I sort of adopted all this from my dad, and so I guess it was a matter of privacy for him. It sort of is for me. Uh, but sort of like not going on to another person's property without an invite or permission. You know, sort of along those lines. In the Old West, a person who did that could be shot. Now, I don't know if that's still the case. I assume it is. If you go onto somebody's property without permission, <laughs> taking your life in your own hands. Um, I know that not terribly long ago, someone snuck onto the property of the uh, Maravillas Ranch down here and stole a truck from the foreman's house, like right outside his house. Um, and as far as I know, they were never caught, but it was suspected they were using it to smuggle drugs and people, like, you know, all the things. This was an invasion of privacy, an attack on the safety and security of the foreman and his family, uh, a, a pestering burden thrown onto their backs without any concern for their mental, emotional, and physical well-being. And I'm sure that if they ever catch the folks that did it, there will be a reckoning. They will face prosecution and jail time because Texas has always taken a very hard line against this kind of theft, and that's only if they don't wind up getting shot first. Uh, but all of this boils down to one thing, a fear of losing control over self, over our property, 
over the space that we inhabit, fear of being at someone else's mercy, especially in the unfortunate case that they don't have any mercy. We don't like the idea of not being in control. And I don't necessarily mean we have to control everything and everyone, although there are some sociopaths in history who have tried that. What I mean is we don't like someone else calling the shots for us or the things that belong to us. And we don't like being told what to do or forced to do it. We are Texans, after all, most of us, right? Or at least Americans, I think that'll cover most of us. But when it comes to being Christian, that's exactly the reality we face as citizens of our Lord Jesus and his kingdom. We give up our rights to call the shots for our own lives when we step into the waters and follow Jesus in baptism. In the cross and the empty tomb, we come face to face with the fact that we are not our own. We are temples of the Holy Spirit who have been bought with a price, and we should live accordingly. That's basically what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, and it directly related to what it's directly related to what we're going to see today in today's text as Paul continued his letter. Now keep in mind, Paul tied his entire encouragement here to the return of Jesus and the culmination of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So follow along with me as we read 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Okay. So Paul is continuing, uh, was continuing his encouragement here by reminding them that they already knew all of this would be headed their way. All the persecution they're facing, they knew that was coming. And he actually told them that they didn't need him to tell them, which I find kind of funny. That's really like when we say, needless to say, and then keep on going to say the thing that was needless to say. It's like that. Now that's what Paul did here. Uh, he wrote about something they already knew as a means 
of encouraging them in the way they should live as a result. So what was the thing that was needless to say, right? Well, the day of the Lord. When we talked about this idea before during our study of the Minor Prophets, we saw that the day of the Lord was at the very heart of their beliefs about shalom, peace, everything as it should be, uh, and the world set right, that sort of idea. The justice and mercy of the Lord working in tandem to bring about a world made whole. And along with this would come both justice and vindication for the people of God. Paul is calling back to that idea here and connecting it directly to the return of Jesus. Basically, he was telling them that when Jesus returned, he would bring justice and vindication for those who had been wronged, including those who had been martyred. The Thessalonian believers who were mistreated and died as a result of being persecuted and executed for declaring Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar, would not only be resurrected to experience the return of Jesus, but would be vindicated in the process. Those who had chosen the way of Caesar, those who had chosen him as their Lord and cast their lot in with the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, they would be very surprised when the world as they knew it came to an abrupt screeching halt. In verses 2 through 3, Paul described the return of Jesus in terms of a thief in the night. And we have all heard that terminology used before, uh, maybe so much that it's possible we are missing the real punch of what Paul was saying here. A thief isn't a good thing for the head of the house. Right? Uh, that meant that in Paul's view, Jesus would be returning soon, and Caesar, the head of the house, was going to face consequences for claiming to be Lord. But it didn't just mean trouble for Caesar as a person, though. It meant serious trouble for Caesar's kingdom. Because a thief upends everything, everything in everyday life. A thief threatens livelihood and privacy. A thief causes turmoil and ultimately means something is lost. In this case, the everyday life that would be upended would be that of the Roman Empire because that's who was in charge at the time. It's who Paul would have been thinking about when he wrote this. The return of Jesus would be a threat to the livelihood of the Roman way of doing things. It would cause turmoil for anyone trusting in the Pax Romana. And it would ultimately mean that the entire way of life for people living and moving and having their being under Caesar and the peace that he provided would be lost forever. There are quite a few things we could draw from this reality in Paul's writing here, but we're just going to focus on two real quick. First, this is clearly a battle of kingdoms, and the kingdom of God is going to win. In many ways, it already has. Because the greatest power the kingdoms of this world have ever wielded over their subjects has been the power of death, the threat of death. The Rome even used this power on Jesus and many of his followers after that. But when Jesus didn't stay dead, that power basically went out the window. Now there was a new power on the scene, the power of resurrection life. 
And this meant that no one who trusted in Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar ever had to worry about death because it was not the ultimate power and it would not have the final word. As a result of his death and resurrection, the power of Jesus was shown to be the ultimate power in the universe. And it would have the final word as the resurrection life flowing in and through him would become the foundation of his kingdom. Second, this leans toward the idea that we shouldn't place our trust in the leaders and kingdoms of this world because none of them are permanent. None of them are eternal. They are all passing away. Even the United States will one day cease to exist and our citizenship as Americans along with it. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe not, but that it will happen is guaranteed. And we won't be dancing around in the kingdom of God with American flags or celebrating the 4th of July because the thief will have come in the night and stolen all of that away. And all we'll be left with is our identity in Christ and the things of his kingdom. Which means we need to be investing everything we have in that kingdom. Because it's the only one that is completely safe from what is coming. And this is exactly what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 6, 19-21, when he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wasn't talking about some cloudy pasture in the sky where we go after we die. He was talking about his kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that picture of the kingdom of heaven being once and for all restored to wholeness when the new Jerusalem descends from above and heaven and earth are put back together and fully restored as they were in the garden before the fall. And as much as we have trusted in the way of Jesus and the things of his kingdom, we will be right at home and experience wholeness instead of loss. But where we have placed our trust in the ways of the world and its governments and its cultural influences and its wealth and power and fame, we will experience the return of Jesus as loss because all of those things will come to an end. Now Paul unpacked this even more in Philippians 3, 8-11, encouraging believers to go ahead and offload all that stuff now. After listing his own outstanding credentials and his standing as a religious leader, all the things that would make him someone important and things he would want to hold on to, uh, all the stuff about his leadership in the Jewish community, all that, he wrote this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So for Paul, the return of Jesus would bring about the end of every earthly king and kingdom. And their end would mean the end of all their ways. Only Jesus and his kingdom would remain. And Paul wanted to be as immersed in that as he could be. And he wanted that for the Thessalonians too, and I dare say he would want it for all believers, including us. But do we want that? That's the real question. We may immediately nod our heads and think, well, of course we want that. We are Christians, after all. But do our thoughts and words and actions betray us? Do we wake up each day and enter into our daily routine with a keen awareness of the choices we need to make for the sake of the kingdom that day? Do we take into stock the people who need to experience the love of Jesus that day? Or are we living selfishly, building our own kingdom, putting our trust maybe in someone else's kingdom, when the reality is that all these will come to nothing? Do we even believe that? Or do we think that our kingdom or the kingdom of America or whatever other kingdom will last? that these kingdoms we have built or placed our trust in will somehow lead us into the kingdom of God or will protect us, watch over us and keep us because it has our best interests at heart. Because that's not the way this works. It's not the way any of this works. Caesar and the Roman Empire had a slogan that they used to reassure people that they had nothing to fear, right? that the Pax Romana would never fail. They claimed they could provide peace and security to the people within the empire. And Paul was encouraging these believers not to trust any such imperial propaganda. And I honestly believe he would say the same thing to us today. Did the government or some politician promise something that will make you feel safe and secure? Don't place your trust there. Place it in Jesus alone. Did some advertisement promise a product would provide a sense of belonging and purpose? Don't place your trust there. Place it in Jesus alone. See, this is what Paul meant in verse 3 when he talked about the false sense of security and the sudden destruction that would show up when Jesus returns. And moving into verses 4 through 5, Paul used language that is very similar to what we saw John use in his letters last fall when we were studying that. And John was writing to believers to warn them against Gnostic teachings that devalue Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. And he wrote of the contrast between light and darkness repeatedly in his letters, describing those who followed Jesus as walking in the light while those who did not remain in the darkness. And Paul uses similar language and imagery here, telling the Thessalonian believers that they were not in darkness, and that as a result they should not be surprised 
when Jesus returns and all the kingdoms of this world come to nothing. None of that should surprise them. Sometimes I look around at the state of the church in our time and I'm reminded of the time we threw a surprise party for my father-in-law's 70th birthday. It was up in Midland. We were all waiting uh, in the fellowship hall area of their church and, uh, and, and he was walking into the building and I, I guess that uh, my mother-in-law, Carly, had told Jim uh, that he was coming to some sort of regular church event because it was supposed to be a surprise party he wasn't supposed to know. But all the lights were off, right, so that we could sort of surprise him. And he seemed to be a little perturbed at the darkness. And at one point, uh, he said, Jackson, will you do it? No? Okay. Jackson does it really well at the house. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not do it as well. But he said, Jimmy Christmas who turned off the lights? I can't see a thing. <laughs> That's what he said. Sometimes I look around at the state of the church in our time and I think the same thing. Then I wonder, how have I fed into that? Like, how have I made choices that enhanced the darkness instead of the light? When I wake up and begin my day, what kingdom am I working on? The kingdom of Jesus, full of light and life and love, or some other kingdom? One that won't last. What am I building? Am I bringing light or darkness into the lives of others? Now, these are serious questions that we can't afford to dismiss or ignore, at least not if we're serious about being followers of Jesus and citizens of his kingdom. I was reading uh, through several commentaries this week, and N.T. Wright, who of course is one of my favorite uh, commenters, uh, he has a great way of expressing everything Paul's saying here. In his commentary, he writes this, and I can't do the British accent, so I'm not even going to try. Uh, well, says Paul, here you are in the middle of the world's night, but the spirit of Jesus within you is telling you it's already daytime. You are already children of the day, children of the light. God's new world has broken in upon the sad, sleepy, drunken, and deadly old world. That's the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. The life of the new world breaking into the old. And you belong to the new world, not the old. You are wide awake long before the sunrise has dawned. Stay awake then. Because this is God's new reality, and it will shortly dawn upon the whole world. I think that's right on. I think that's got it. And rounding out the description of who we are in verse 8, then, Paul talked about putting on armor, right? Uh, a breastplate and a helmet. This is similar to what he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6 of that letter, telling them to, to suit up in the armor of God and then described the various pieces and their sort of metaphorical meaning uh, in that situation. But in both instances, Paul was actually drawing his inspiration from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 59.1, the prophet wrote about the coming salvation of the Lord, saying, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. And then later in verse 17 of that same prophetic poem, Isaiah wrote that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. 
And Paul was using this same sort of imagery to encourage the Thessalonians and the struggle they were facing. Because being a citizen of God's kingdom isn't easy on this side of Jesus' return. The Thessalonians faced all sorts of persecution for their faith and the claim that Jesus was Lord instead of Caesar. Uh, they had to pay payments sometimes, they would lose work, they were beat, they were imprisoned, and they were even killed. As N.T. Wright pointed out, Paul was encouraging them to live as citizens of God's kingdom of light as if it were already fully here, fully established. That's how we should be living too. There's an old song, and I think it's by a Christian singer named Wayne Watson, if any of y'all have ever heard of him. And it's called, One Day Jesus Will Call My Name. And in the chorus he sings this one line, it came back to my mind as I was writing this, and the line is, I want to get so close to him that it's no big change on that day that Jesus calls my name. You see, that's the sort of idea here. For us to live as citizens of God's kingdom now as if it were already fully realized here. Because the reality is that it is already here in us. We are the ambassadors and messengers of Jesus and his kingdom. We are the ones sent ahead to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is coming. We are the ones sent into this world with this message, the gospel, so that we might gather as outposts of his kingdom in the darkness of this world. And doing so is dangerous, which is why we need this armor. But look at what the armor is real quick. There are two distinct defensive pieces, a breastplate of faith and love, along with a helmet of the hope of salvation. Paul drew their attention to these two pieces because of the situation that they were in in Thessalonica. Their faith was being tested and their love needed to be on display. And their hope, the fuel driving their ability to hold on to their faith and love as they were meant to, their hope was the helmet of salvation, the salvation Jesus would bring when he finally returned. We know from the previous verses in chapter 4 that when Jesus returned, the dead would experience resurrection and join the living in celebrating his return, welcoming him to earth, bringing him back, and having the feast that we talked about. Paul was clearly pointing to that reality while encouraging them to live in, pre in their present circumstances in light of that. Not to seek comfort or prestige or power or wealth or fame. Not even to fight back against the tyranny oppressing him. He doesn't say anything about that. But as followers of Jesus, Paul wanted them to live faithfully. To engage others lovingly. And to hold on to the hope of the salvation that would arrive when Jesus returned. We await this same reality. Our hope is gathered together with theirs as we look forward to the return of the risen and rightful Lord. 
And our lives are meant to be full of faith, hope, and love, just as theirs were. Because the king is coming like a thief in the night. And we don't want to be caught unaware when he does. Will you pray with me?